So let me begin by telling you two stories from the last, I don't know, 48 hours or so of my life. So the first one comes from Tuesday morning. Uh, I had a checkup at the eye doctor's. So I'm checking out at the eye doctor's. I'm all done. And it's sort of a big practice and kind of a big counter that people come up to. So this guy is uh, patient is being wheeled up to the counter. He's in a wheelchair. Uh, it wouldn't be significant otherwise, but I'm going to just tell you that he was, I think, significantly overweight. Uh, and he was not wearing a mask. And the people at the desk were telling him that he would be required to put a mask on. And then it's a CDC requirement that the CDC requirement for masks in healthcare facilities is still in force. At which point, this guy, in a pretty loud voice, I wasn't standing near him, uh, said, Well, the CDC has their heads up their ass. They've been lying to us for the whole two years. And so that's the first part of a problem. There's a way in which the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, are kind of in a pincer movement of criticism. One strain of that criticism comes from that guy who I will make into a proxy for the kind of anti-scientific establishment, the anti-scientific movement uh, that is dismissive and even hostile towards COVID science, you know, conventional epidemiology, all that kind of stuff. But then there's this other strand of criticism that comes from people who believe in science and care about science and, and believe in the federal bureaucracy and think it needs to be done well. Everything, all this stuff needs to be done well. There's going to be smart uh, and at times rapid action to deal with something like this using the best possible science. And so some of those people have also spent a lot of time recently criticizing the CDC, but kind of tenderly because you, you don't want to play into Uh, the suppositions and the prejudices of that guy at the eye doctors, who, by the way, should have a mask on because he's in a wheelchair and he's overweight. (laughs) I mean, the risk to him not wearing a mask is huge. But he's already decided to reject all that stuff. He's hostile towards that. You don't want to feed that fire. On the other hand, if you do care about science, if you do care about effective government, you want government to do its job well, then you can't not look at some of what appear to be the failures of the CDC. So that's the first story. Second story, Um, real fast. So uh, some people, if you listen to this show, listen to it for a long time. Back in 2020, the senior producer of the show at the time, Betsy Kaplan, is a nurse. She's actually gone back to nursing now. Uh, But uh, having a nurse as your senior producer and having a pandemic breakout, we just thought we'll try to be really good at this. We'll we'll try to get the best information, talk to the smartest people, including one of the guests I'm about to introduce here. uh, And we'll just try to understand this as well as we can and then convey our understanding to the listeners. So as a result, people like still ask me questions. So somebody had a yesterday, this is yesterday now, had an exposure. She sings sings in a choir, uh, which if you go back to, you know, there was a really bad Arkansas outbreak way back early in 2020. Choirs can be dangerous. There was an exposure uh, while at choir practice. She wants to know what to do and how long the, uh, how long should she isolate? Should she isolate at all? How effective are the tests? And I found that I really wasn't able to answer that question just very easily because the information climate has become so muddled and muddied that it just wasn't clear to me at all. And I've really tried to make this, you know, a kind of semi-expertise. 
I couldn't immediately answer that question without doing some extra research. There's a problem there. Anyway, uh, there may be some solutions at hand. If anybody has them, uh, it might very well be our two guests. Uh, Dr. Saad Omer is a professor of medicine and the epidemiology and, and epidemiology of micro, microbial diseases. You'd think I'd be able to say this easier. At Yale University, where he is also director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. Uh, Jennifer Nuzzo uh, is the uh, inaugural director of the Pandemic Center at the Brown School of Public Health and a professor of epidemiology. So um, let's begin. And, and, and Saad Omer, we should begin by saying that for a long time, the CDC has been kind of the gold standard of the world for public health agencies. Maybe explain how they came to earn that reputation. Well, thanks for the opportunity to be here. Um, so CDC has had a long, illustrious history of being a leading, in fact, the leading national public health institution with global impact. And there are several reasons uh, for its reputation. First, uh, it was one of the earliest uh, science-based systematic efforts to develop a technical expertise that is grounded in the best principles of public health, but also was highly applied working with states and then internationally with various governments, et cetera. The other part was the CDC has the reputation of being um, evidence-based. The third part was its partnerships, um, et cetera. And, 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 and then you know, related to that was its, and, and has been, and so it's not all in past, um, and continues to have uh, the, the, the cachet of excellence in public health. So, I mean, that, that cachet, uh, Jennifer Nuzzo, extends to other countries essentially trying to build their own, you know, disease control and prevention entities modeled closely on the CDC, correct? Yes, I mean, it does. You know, we've seen um, a number of countries go through struggles um, dealing with infectious disease emergencies and then after that, you know, deciding never again, let's make sure we have the resources we need to combat it, um, have engaged the U.S. CDC to help them build um, basically their own version of the agency so that they could be better prepared um, to respond. So we saw this happen in, in China after the 2003 SARS epidemic, um, in uh, South Korea after um, the, the MERS uh, outbreak that they had there, um, you know, a number of places that CDC has been working and supporting um, uh, you know, national governments in trying to develop, um, you know, epidemiologic surveillance and other skills to be able to respond to infectious disease emergencies. So given all of that, uh, Dr. Saad Omer, I mean, it, there's just been an ongoing two-year conversation, uh, almost a sub-cottage industry of the pandemic has been articles, conferences, symposiums, panel discussions about why the CD see failed? How did it fail? How could it be reformed? I mean, why is why is that happening? Why is that such a persistent narrative now? The CDC didn't do this right. So I, I, I don't use the word fail uh, to describe that. And I, I, I would understand like why, you know, it is used. I think it CDC did not live up to its expectations and, and its own standards. Um, and that's that's a fair assessment. Uh, and so one of the reasons is that, you know, look, we have had a million deaths in this country, and it is very reasonable for any society 
to ask what could have been done to prevent those debts or a lot of those debts when our peer countries, um, countries at the same socioeconomic status with a similar uh, you know, level of resources have done better. And in fact, a lot of countries with fewer resources have done better and, and much better. And so, you know, looking at what could we could do differently in terms of institutions, it is natural to look at um, an, an entity like the CDC to see where could we have done things differently. And then there are some prominent instances where it is pretty obvious that things could have been and should have been um, done differently. For example, not you know testing not being scaled up uh, or not being available. Earlier on, uh, certain communication, uh, you know, set of uh, messages that, that that came out of CDC that were not always grounded in uh, best available science at the time, and and the uh, the lack of clarity of certain messaging, etc. So, uh, a lot of um, introspection is is understandable, and in certain cases, justifiable. Yeah, I mean, you know, just to sort of um, amplify what you just said. So, yeah, one of the criticisms is, uh, first of all, CDC insisted on, in a proprietary way of taking control of the early development of testing, creating kind of a single point of failure. And then that happened. The test wasn't right. There was a contamination problem. We were very slow off the mark in testing. But also, if you look at sort of smaller, more granular instances, for example, in early February, 57 people arrived at a Nebraska military base. They were among the first Americans evacuated from Wuhan. Uh, a lot of them were not symptomatic, but there was a team there. First of all, uh, people who follow this stuff know that quite nearby is one of the most significant, famous, and well-equipped uh, pandemic response centers in America, is in Nebraska. But yeah. there, was, there was a guy named Dr. James Lawler who was trying to test all these people. Uh, because uh, he wanted to know. 57 people just came back from Wuhan. How many of them have the virus? And he fought and fought with the CDC, and they wouldn't let him do it. It went all the way up to, to Robert Redfield, who was at that time the head of the CDC, and they said no. They said it went, went against one of their protocols, which is how could these people consent to the testing if they were being held in quarantine? Uh, but that kind of thing, I mean, to me, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. but Dr. Omer, that feels like a really bad decision. Yeah, and, and I think it's fair to look at not just, you know, individual decisions, but uh, systematic shortcomings in, in, in the response. Again, and I say that as a huge fan of the CDC. Um, I say that as someone who genuinely appreciated the hard work uh, that men and women of uh, the CDC have continued to put in uh, before this pandemic and during this pandemic. Uh, look, there, there have been changes in, in the culture of CDC over the years. Um, there was an exodus of uh, not just senior leadership, but but middle mid-level leadership in early 2000s due to some restructuring of CDCs. And, and any look at that, any serious look at the CDC should um, sort of examine what happened between that time and when we uh, things came to a head in, 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 you know, during, during the pandemic. Because the people who were there, even at junior levels in early 2000s, learned the lesson to not focus on a certain things. Um, and so it is reasonable to say that cutting edge work that used to come out of CDC was not rewarded as much, for example. There wasn't uh, a lot of focus on, on management and leadership. Uh, it is often the ordinary that hampers the exceptional. So, for example, there were shortcomings in 
PCR testing were not shortcomings of science. It was shortcomings of management and, and, and learning from other disciplines that how do you maintain supply chains and how do you not create a single point of failure? Um, and companies in the era of, of the fact that if I order something online, uh, there is a whole huge supply chain that makes sure that I get that in two days. CDC didn't have those lessons internalized, for example. So both in terms of the change in culture that happened uh, in the last 15 years, uh, and probably a bit longer, uh, but also not staying with the uh, the tools that should be incorporated into modern public health, which some, several other countries incorporated, uh, I think then uh, manifested uh, in individual decisions that were suboptimal. Right. So, Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo, you know, I mean, it's hard to sort of to parse where the worst problems came from. I mean, we can look at, you know, from 3,000 feet, we can say, well, we have got 4% of the world's population, somewhere between 20 and 25% of the world's COVID deaths. Something's wrong. Well, what's wrong? Well, we're a little more obese than a lot of nations. We had a president uh, at the time of the outbreak who was not uh, committed to a scientific response and who had, even before the pandemic, uh, eviscerated some of the, the COVID staff within the White House and also made some significant cutbacks at the CDC, including people who would have been boots on the ground in China uh, prior to those cuts. There's all kinds of things. But there is also this sense that the CDC wasn't really good, particularly in the early stages, it's kind of rapid action stuff and the messaging. And that raises the question for me, are we trying to play a trumpet solo on a violin? Is the CDC really, really good at science, studying, uh, figuring, figuring things out at a kind of normal scientific pace, but maybe not great at turning its battleship around and dealing with stuff really, really fast, particularly at the level of public communication? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, <clears throat> you know, it is true that if you try to look at what went wrong, I think there's going to be a temptation to find the thing. I think that's a normal human response to a crisis is to to find a, a, a direction to point your finger. Um, but I do think that it's all of the things that you ticked off. And it's also um, something that we haven't yet talked about, which is um, the kind of federal system that we have and how public health is structured in this country. I think often when people think of public health, they often kind of have a shortcut in their mind to the CDC without recognizing that the vast majority of public health actions that are taken in this country are taken by state and local governments. And that's by design, the, the, the constitution that we have. Um, so and that puts CDC in somewhat of a difficult situation when it comes to a national crisis, because it's inherently limited in, in what it can do and what it can ask of states. And in fact, much of what we do in public health nationally is really on a voluntary basis. And so I think what this um, crisis really exposed um, is that, yes, there's absolutely shortcomings within the federal agency that is the CDC. I think the testing example um, given was a, an, an important one. It was also one that um, I think transcended not just one federal agency, but multiple federal agencies in the absence of a process to adjudicate problems as they arise and, and develop a whole of government solution when problems arise. Um, but also the fact that this crisis exposed the fact that our basic infrastructure for public health, the foundation of public health in this country is state and local health departments. And they went into this crisis incredibly weak incredibly unprepared for a crisis of this magnitude. And I have you know, very clear recollections um, of the early days of this crisis, having conversations with state and local health officials before things really 
you know, be, got going here in the United States, sort of asking them about their plans. And it wasn't really even on their radar. I mean, they just sort of assumed this was a crisis that was in China and China only. And it was something that we were going to not deal with because we were going to limit travel coming from China. And that was just a flawed assumption. And I think it speaks to the absence of a larger preparedness culture that is, you know, constantly looking um, for future threats and, and exercising around, you know, worst possible scenarios so that we're not caught unprepared. First of all, you'll be glad to know that the final 20 minutes of this show is a conversation with uh, Dr. Jennifer Bagani McKinney, who's a, um, a city health officer, a county health officer in Kansas, and Lori Freeman, who's the runs the National Association of County and City Health Officials. So we're, we're, we're answering the bell, uh, Jennifer. Uh, we're we're going to go after that question. And I think it's also fair to say there were, I mean, Michael, Lewis has now made Charity Dean the most famous public health official in America. But there were public health officials who who right away were saying, hey, <laughs> this is a big problem. Uh, we need the battleship to turn around uh, and kind of face us. Let me just ask you one more question before we go to break, uh, Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo. Um, to me, one of the things that I'm still just baffled by, and I'm not blaming all of this on the CDC, not by any means, but the the slowness of America – to understand the shift from a droplet mode of transmission to an aerosolized mode of transmission. To me, there should have been just a day where, where everything kind of stopped and, and led by whoever, whoever was the most trusted spokesperson, a, a lot of communication needed to happen. Because I, I don't know about you, I still have conversations with people who think if you sit 10 feet away or something that that's really helpful, which is not necessarily true uh, in, in a highly aerosolized environment. I mean, this was a major shift in the understanding of the primary means, the kinetics of transmission. And I feel like there wasn't like a moment where we just hit the brakes as the nation and said, wait a second, we got to think about this different. Yeah, I mean, I think it really underscores the the challenge here, which is that if you know you're faced with something that not only challenges, you know, um, long held dogma, um, but also raises questions about what to do about about it. And, you know, it's it's really tough in the midst of a crisis. And this isn't excusing it, but just kind of maybe reminding ourselves of what everyone was thinking back then. Um, which was that, you know, a number of these questions were raised at a time when we couldn't even get basic personal protective equipment for the people who are at greatest risk, the doctors and nurses and healthcare workers who are on the front line. And so kind of ringing the bell saying that this was something that could, you know, spread over longer range um, when we didn't have clear, clear person to person data. Um, that supported it, knowing what the kind of fallout of that would be given um, the consequences. You can understand why perhaps um, there was a bit of a slowness. Now, of course, we have to learn in the future um, how we act in the face of uncertainty and whether we, um, you know, that may prompt us to take actions that we might later forget, but uh, regret rather. Um, but um, we, we just need to figure out how to do this. And it, it's, it's really not easy. I, I would argue that the way that we get better at doing these things is to do more exercises so that we can ask ourselves what if and then we have at least some framework for responding to you know these what if questions not knowing if they will ever be the case but at least that we aren't caught completely unaware uh, when new possibilities arise. All right. That's a great place for us to go to a break. We'll come back with these two terrific guests, uh, talk a little bit more with them then we'll segue to city and uh, county public health officials.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. When we think of slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. We're back. We're talking about the CDC with Doctors Saad Omer and Jennifer Nozo. Uh, if I go through their titles, I'll run out of time. I have a post that I have to hit at the end of this because we we have to go to the uh, the final segment. But um, so we should talk a little bit about solutions. Uh, Doctor Nozo already just talked about uh, uh, running exercises. Maybe we can come back to that in just a second. But but uh, Doctor Saad Omer. You know, this whole thing has kind of turned into like Real Housewives of Atlanta. You've got uh, uh, Dr. Redfield complaining that his predecessors potshotted at him and backstabbed him. Uh, and, and you've got also, it's, it's clearly coming out now, more details about the degree to which the White House really meddled with CDC communications, pulled, make them, made them pull things back, refused to talk, for example, about churches and church choirs and how they were dangerous, wanted the, had the guidance rewritten uh, to take that out. So one of the things I guess we would probably like would be an agency that was harder to meddle with. Um, is there a way to get that? Uh, absolutely. Look, obviously, there's no perfect solutions. But 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 before we get to that, I just want to highlight the fact that while we require and the moment demands serious introspection and, and serious considerations of what could be done better, CDC is indispensable. And a prominent uh, role uh, for a CDC 2.0 in the sense, you know, with uh, you know, with some changes, is in in extreme national interest. So, so one mistake would be to develop structures that bypass uh, CDC's role or uh, decrease CDC's role, because that CDC remains our best bet based on uh, you know its infrastructure, its capabilities, uh, etc. That can be improved. But they are hard to replace, or, or you know, you can't build other structures, uh, you know, that, that bypass CDC. So, so something to remember. So, yes, the, there are certain ideas that are that have been proposed. So, a kind of a independent board of health kind of a model where there is um, uh, sort of a buffer between um, appointments and 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 sort of some of the functions of CDC, uh, but also. Uh, governments uh, um, need to and administrations need to realize that it's in their best interest, not just country's best interest, to have a well-functioning and independent 
CDC that, that is perceived as such. In terms of the one specific fix uh, that could um, increase CDC's independence and, and, and hence contribute to um, increased trust in CDC is how CDC budget is managed. So often, like it's 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 a very fragmented budget, where you know um, a 24 year old congressional aide should not be macro micromanaging uh, a, a premier public health agency. So there should be some delegation to CDC leadership. Um, in the budgeting process. And, and, you know, look, over the years, you know, if, if, if you go to the CDC campus, uh, some of these involvements and, and uh, are pretty obvious in, in some borderline comical way. So if you stroll through the CDC campus, you wouldn't find building names after public health luminaries as much as, as you would, you know, you arrive at the, uh, at the, uh, the re- represented Edward R. Roy by comp campus <laughs> Uh, to check into the Arlen Specter headquarters uh, and emergency <laughs> operations center, uh, and and then uh, you have your conferences at the Senator Tom Harkin Communication Center, uh, etc. And so, so, so that's out there. And these are not public health people, right. uh, after which buildings should be named. Uh, and so, so uh, on a more serious note, it is extremely important how CDC budget is uh, allocated and how that process is is managed. All right. So, yes, and the D- Dan Quayle Biosciences Lab, I think, is the maybe the biggest mistake of all. But um, So let me uh, hand the magic wand o- over to Dr. Jennifer Nozzo, just because uh, I'm worried about running out of time. I'm going to let you make one or two changes. Uh, you can wave it in the direction of Atlanta or wherever you think you need to wave it. But what would you like to change to make this better? We already talked about sort of practice more. Uh, what else? Yeah, and I have to absolutely echo um, what Dr. Omer said about how the CDC is irreplaceable. And we so we very much need to um, fix what's there, but the solution to the problems are not to just um, scrap what's there. Um, very much agree. And I think the budget is an important um, issue to get at. I would argue that we also have to shore up the base. And part of the base is really what happens in state and local health departments. And glad your next segment will be talking about that because again, given the fact that we have a federal system and that CDC's authorities and abilities to act are are constrained by that fact, um, they're only going to be as good as the base of the pyramid. And so if they go into a crisis with um, completely weak capacities in state and local health departments with poor relationships, and I don't believe that they have poor relationships, but clearly as the crisis goes on, tensions flare. Um, If they go in um, to support what is already a strong um, foundation um, that just sets them up for success in a way that we just didn't have going into this crisis. So I think that's absolutely key. I do think that, you know, we need to modernize some of the abilities at CDC. There's a lot of conversation now about monitoring, uh, modernizing the public health data infrastructure in this country. Again, that's going to be constrained by those um, federal system and and, and getting states on board. But it it is a problem that we very much um, should fix uh, because it's absolutely necessary. And then making sure that CDC has the skills and, um, you know, uh, up to date um, uh, training to be able to handle those those modern data. I, I think those are key. But again, if we only kind of point our fingers at CDC and don't look broadly across the nation about what abilities we have within our states, 
I think CDC is never going to be set up for success. All right. So we only got a couple of minutes left. I first want to apologize to Dr. Omer because at some point in the next two months, he's going to pick up his New Haven Register and there's going to be a column by me arguing that that it's possible that the brand of CDC is so significantly damaged at this point that it it will need to be reorganized and rebranded. And I'll give you my cell phone number. You can call me up and yell at me. (laughs) Uh, But um, but. One thing that you didn't address when I asked you that previous question is, I mean, you know, the GAO, the General Accounting Office, I think the director there has like a 15-year appointment. It's a, I think it's a presidential appointment, but it's for like 15 years. And I believe Dr. Fauci's appointment runs pretty long, too. Is there just maybe a reason to have a CDC director who's not worried about being summarily fired by the president the way, I mean, obviously Robert Redfield existed in that kind of twilight for the entirety of his time? Yeah, it, I think that's one of the ideas being discussed. Um, and um, I think that comes with trade-offs. Do we really want uh, a CDC director to go through Senate confirmation process, um, et cetera? So it hasn't been a, a situation, even including Dr. Redfield, where you step back and you say that uh, a confirmation process, because you know these longer-term appointments come uh, or, or um, with that kind of those kinds of uh, you know strings attached, if you will, uh, that that you know we can't we, we don't look back and we can't look back and, and see that you know the process would have been improved by a confirmation process, uh, etc. Uh, and, and and so I think we need to be careful about um, all new ideas may not move things in the right direction. Uh, however, you know on on its merits, a long term appointment has value. But I think it should be part of a comprehensive package of things that should be done uh, to improve CDC's effectiveness. All right. That makes total sense to me. Uh, I, I'm going to unfortunately have to pause here. I could talk to both of you for many hours. Not that you would necessarily enjoy that. But uh, Dr. Saad Omer is professor of medicine and the and epidemiology of microbial diseases at Yale, where he's also director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo is the inaugural director of the Pandemic Center at the Brown School of Public Health and a professor of epidemiology. We are so lucky to have both of them. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, and get ready to hear what it looks like on the streets of Kansas. All right. It's time to say some important thank yous, uh, starting with Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer. She's in the, on the board today and uh, making the whole thing work. Uh, and senior producer of the Colin McEnroe show, Lily Tyson, is the producer of this episode. This episode took probably extra work, and it's kind of a passion project of mine. Uh, so we worked pretty closely uh, on all of this. But, but it was especially hard work, I think, pulling this all together. We're very excited to end where we're going to end uh, because – Tip O'Neill famously said all politics is local. To a certain degree, I think all public health is local, too. Sooner or later, you have to reach the people who are at the meeting in the gymnasium. You know, Sooner or later, you have to be able to use Facebook Live or whatever tools you have at your disposal. If you're a county pub- public health director or other local public health authority, you've got to be able to use whatever trust and, and, and emotional capital you have with the people around you to come up with the best results and the best strategy and the best 
forms of mitigation. This was very difficult to do for all of the reasons that we've covered so far on the show. Joining us now to talk about how it looked and felt uh, for the more local public health officials uh, is Dr. Jennifer Bacani McKenney, a family physician based in Kansas who was also the Wilson County and Fredonia City Health Officer. Also with us, Lori Freeman, Chief Executive Officer of the National Association of County and City Health Officials. So, um, Lori Freeman, I'm going to begin with you. Uh, Give us a sense how optimally, anyway, the CDC and local public health departments interact. First of all, thanks for having me on the show today. I really appreciate it. Our local health departments are part of the essential fabric of the public health system in our country, federal, state, and local. But on the ground, as you just so aptly um, commented on, the local health departments are on the front line of the front line of response during uh, public health emergencies, um, during uh, pandemic, and, and other situations where we have to keep our communities healthy and safe. So the way that they work with the CDC is really an extension of the CDC's work, but on the execution side. Um, So really the CDC's job is to, to conduct surveillance of threats to the health and security of our country in terms of uh, preventable um, and curable disease and other types of threats. And on the ground in communities across this country, local health departments are working on a community-wide level uh, to really implement the guidance um, based on the science that the CDC produces um, when we are in a situation like we we are in with this pandemic and other public health emergencies. So providing feedback from the ground, making sure that the CDC understands what the situational awareness is in communities and and really having that inform um, the guidance um, along with the science. So let me follow this up and just ask you, this is a hard question to answer because we're talking about, you know, I think probably thousands of public health officials uh, and a lot of different counties. And, and obviously, Flathead County, Montana, is going to be different from Santa Barbara County, uh, California, which is going to be different from Wilson County, Kansas. But Lori Freeman, one sense is that going into the pandemic, rather than being in robust condition, the more consistent truth would be that a lot of these public health agencies, these local or county public health agencies, were underfunded and understaffed. How true is that from your 3,000-foot view of it? It's very true and very accurate. You know, leading up to the pandemic, our workforce at the public health level, at the county and city health level, not even any other part of the public health system, but counties and cities had suffered almost a 21% loss of workforce in the past decade. That was before the pandemic even hit. So coming into the pandemic, um, all kinds of workforce challenges. Uh, you know, We really were uh, at a breaking point in terms of the infrastructure of our public health system. So Dr. Jennifer Bacani McKenney, um, as we said before, Wilson County and Fredonia uh, City Health Officer, um, maybe you could just sort of describe this, and this is, would be a really long answer if you were to give it completely, but, but sort of what your job was uh, starting somewhere between January 20th and March 20th uh, of 2020, and what it was like to try to do that job. Well, Colin, thank you so much for having having me here today to to speak on behalf of the local public health officers. Um, the, the the quick answer is nobody knew what their job was mm. when the pandemic started, and so 
um, what what I did along with my health department administrator was uh, that we said, okay, we need to just step forward and gather the information. We didn't have any more information than anybody else did, but we were willing to say, let's put the information together, gather the people, and then try to relay that to as many people as possible so that we're all on the same page. And really that's, that's all we did. Um, I believe COVID came to Kansas on March 6th. By March 9th, which was a Monday, we had uh, gathered all the stakeholders in Wilson County, the hospitals, clinics, schools, government, businesses, churches, just people that we, we thought um, could, could share the information with their um, employees, with their, you know, their, their uh, churchgoers, with, their, uh, with whoever they work with. And so of course, we, we squished them all into a conference room because we didn't know any better <laughs> at that time. But we just, you know, we made a PowerPoint presentation and we said, this is what COVID is. This is what we know. This is what we don't know. This is what we can do. This is what we can't do. And what questions do you have? And so we did that week after week. And then we started realizing that there were people at home that were scared and they weren't at work and they weren't in, in school and, and they didn't know what was going on. And so that's when we started um, taking to Facebook Live and we said, all right, tune in. We'll answer any question you have the best we can. And so we, we just started um, doing a Facebook Live every week and saying the same stuff. This is what we know. This is what we don't know. What questions do you have? And for us, that was the best way to to kind of um, gather everyone together and make make this pandemic as manageable as possible, easing people's minds while keeping people safe. Um, so so really, we all came into this thinking we don't know. And and in Kansas, we didn't have a, a local public health officer um, infrastructure. We just mostly got appointed when um, the one before us quit or died. Um, that's how I got appointed. And especially in rural communities, we, we're practicing family doctors. So we're busy doing our, our usual work, taking care of people um, in the clinics and in the parking lots and in the hospitals. And um, so then the the health officer gig was kind of a side thing, um, but then it kind of took over everything else that we were doing, trying to juggle caring for people all around. So so we just kind of made it up as we went along, I guess is how I would say that. I've read a lot about what you did, and it's very impressive. I think you, you did all the things that we would hope somebody in your job would do, uh, whether or not that was ultimately enough, given the complexity of the problem is a, is a whole other question. But I'm just wondering, you just said a couple of times that you made it up as you went along. You had to kind of figure these things out in real time. You had to make decisions in an environment of uncertainty, which is the worst way to make decisions, but you had no choice. I mean, how much guidance came down from the CDC? I mean, to what degree did the CDC say, well, you don't have to make it up. We know what to do. Here's what you're going to do. You know, we relied a lot on the CDC for the data, for the information that they had, for the statistics. We shared the statistics every week with our with our county and with with everyone who was interested in the data. Um, it, it was interesting because we we had to follow the guidance from our state, from the Kansas Department of Health and Environment. They kind of give, gave the official guidance to us, and but it wasn't everything. And so, you know, there, there were holes still. What do we do about this? Here's a situation that isn't covered in the guidelines. So then we would turn to the CDC and kind of um, interpret their information and how we could apply that to our county. And so it was um, it was kind of a combination between the state and the CDC and then trying to put that together and apply it to our specific situations. You know, we heard early on 
that uh, partly because, well, because in fact, the entire system from the federal level to the local level is underfunded and, and understaffed and probably under techno- technology, if that's, if that's a, a participle. Uh, and, and we heard early on that just getting information either to or from the CDC was difficult. Uh, there wasn't sort of a smooth digital pipeline. Uh, it was phone. It was email. It was physical mail. It was Fax machines apparently were used a lot, a lot more than people even imagine fax machines are used anywhere in 2020 or 2021. So can you say a little bit about that? I mean, how how did all that work on your level? I will say that we kind of had to seek the information. So we had to go on their websites. Um, when questions were asked, we it wasn't a quick answer and it really wasn't, um, you know, something, it, it definitely wasn't two-way conversation. You know, I, I, would hope, especially looking back, um, I I would say that I, I wish we had more direct information from them um, in the form of emails or, or conference calls or, you know, everybody jump on this call so we can tell you what we're thinking. And then also information from us so we can say, hey, this is what we're seeing. This is what we need help with. And we just didn't have that. And you're right. It was, there were many different ways that they were communicating information. It wasn't necessarily consistent. It was there. I know they, I know they were trying, but most of the time we had to go find it ourselves. So, um, Lori, one thing that we know from just a, a lot of reporting, and I think eventually Jennifer Jennifer's going to tell us her own stories about this, but this is a really hard time to be a public uh, health director. You've got a situation where there's kind of an anti-scientific community that is unusually mobilized and coherent thanks to social media. Uh, you've got a, a, just a lot of people who are scared and resistant uh, and distrustful of authority, and the most of available person, it seems, in a lot of these situations to take out that frustration on was a local public health official. So, Lori, give us a sense of this. I mean, there's, there's been tracking, for example, of the sheer number of threats and harassment that people like, uh, like Dr. McKinney experienced. Yes, we have um, been able to do a fair number of research at this point on both the level of harassment, threats, intimidation that have occurred, as well as just the, you know, the end game here, which is the departures of local health officials from their positions due to threats, intimidation, harassment. So um, as of the latter part of last year, we'd already lost well over 500 local health officials and, and state health officials. So the, the, these are the leaders of the agencies. We we don't have any data below that on, on the actual workforce yet. We're working on it. So imagine, you know, already we've lost a, a good, minimally 500, probably now upwards of, of a few hundred more than that. Um, those types of leadership positions are really hard to replace in a local health department. They don't have deep benches because of the, the things that we've talked about before, the resource issues. Um, And these are long tenured positions often. These are individuals that serve their community for a long time and have trust built up. They have partnerships built up. Um, They live where they work. They're part of the community. So this is really a tragic loss for for our field and not an easy one to, to deal with in terms of replacing them. 
longer term. And I think we'll see more of that coming down the pike as the pandemic continues to ease, because a lot of our health departments are committed individuals um, who uh, serve no matter what, um, but they're just reaching the breaking point. Uh, and then the last thing I would add is we've also done a lot of work um, with the CDC uh, to look at the mental health impacts to our workforce. So for those people that even stayed in the field, uh, the mental health impacts are tremendous. And over half of, of those that we surveyed indicated that they're suffering from at least um, one um, serious mental health condition, including post-traumatic stress syndrome. So we have a lot of work to, rebuilding work to do and helps to get to these folks in the field. Jennifer McKinney, tell us a little bit more. I, I know just from reading about you that there certainly was one time where there was a meeting with the community in the gymnasium, and I think a sheriff came up to you and said, I'm going to walk you to your car. Yeah, that was a strange situation because um, I I practice in my in my hometown. I was born and raised there. The people that I was trying to protect, um, the people in those gymnasium in that gymnasium, they were the ones that I grew up with. The people I knew since I was a kid. And so, for somebody to come up to me, the sheriff's deputy, and say, "Let's just walk you out because you know we're we're a little nervous about the people that are here and they're a little angry," those are my people. And so it's it. it um, that was probably the, the hardest point of the pandemic for me to realize that I, at that point, someone thought that I was not safe in my own hometown. And so it really, it, it was as, as bad, you know, for public health officers as, as people talk about. People had it way worse than I did in, in certain situations. I think in my situation, it was just very personal. I think public health can become very personal because we're trying to keep people safe. Um, and, and for them, sometimes that means that that they're doing, they have to do things they don't want to do. Maybe they're scared. They, they just want to blame somebody and they can't blame the virus. So they, they blame us. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was a tough time. You know, we have a, we have a health department that has four full-time employees and, and they, they could make more money down the street at the dollar store if they wanted to. So, um, as Lori said, these are committed people that are doing public health and it's, it's just a sad state when, um, when they're treated in that way. I mean, I looked at one study, I think it came out of Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, that said between um, March of 2020, which is kind of when things really got uh, hot and rolling, and January of 2021, so that's less than a year, at least 1,500 um, incidents of harassment and violence were directed at public health workers, uh, and this included everything from doxing people on the internet to death threats, protests, intimidations, shots fired at employees' homes. This is just nuts. And you, to Lori's point, I think there are probably a lot of people who are in their jobs right now saying, the minute this cools down and I can, in good conscience, walk away from it, I'm walking away from it. I mean, I, I don't know how people hang in there against that kind of stuff. But I'm also sort of, I don't want to make it sound completely hopeless. And, and so, Jennifer, I know one thing that you've talked about is that there are also a lot of young people watching this all unfold and thinking, oh, I want to do something meaningful with my life. Maybe I should be thinking about public health. Yeah, it is really exciting, you know, through all of this. 
um, somehow people were watching and they said the work that we're doing is something that they want to do. It's something that is meaningful to them. And they're going into school to become public health officers and work in health departments and take on these challenges. So it is very exciting and very encouraging. Can, I, I'm going to ask you both the same question, but uh, Jennifer, I'll start with you. Um, if something could be different, if you, if I could hand you a magic wand and you could point it, let's say, at the CDC and say, okay, this is going to be different. This is just going to get fixed because I, uh, Dr. McKinney, say it needs to get fixed. What would that be? What, what change would make this either better in the moment now or maybe even more importantly, better come the next pandemic? I would love for the CDC to listen more to us at the local level. I, I know that's difficult. It's um, and I, I know they. I, I believe that they would want to, but um, but finding a way to hear what we're going through, what help we need at the moment, I think would be great. And also giving us a heads up if they're going to um, change their guidance dramatically, let us know ahead of time so we can prepare, so we can share the message with them and be a partner with them um, instead of having to try to explain things after the fact to our communities. It seems also, just to build a little bit on what you're saying too, the sense that I'm getting, once again, just doing the research for this show, is is that, you know, there's a little bit of a disjuncture between even some of the really impressive stuff that was done in, in biomedicine. I mean, particularly the development of these so-called Cadillac mRNA vaccines, which is amazing, amazing that it was done in such a short window, amazing that they work as well as they do. But I would assume that plopping them into underfunded public health systems at the state and local level, you know, is 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 going to be a problem, right? It's one thing to make this exquisitely uh, brilliant vaccine. It's another thing to get it into people's arms. Uh, did you feel like you got enough help with that? Uh, or does the help maybe need to come at the state and local level in terms of funding and, and staffing? Oh, definitely. I think we we need more help. We still don't have enough people out there that are vaccinated. The messaging needs to be consistent throughout um, and absolutely the, the funding, the resources that we have at the local levels were definitely not enough. We, the best we could do was um, more Facebook lives and more um, sessions and more social media to try to get people to get vaccinated, to understand what was going on. But we could definitely have used more and we still need the help now. So, uh, Lori, kind of same question. Let's say that I uh, can uh, set up uh, 30 minutes face-to-face or, or Zoom-to-Zoom with you, with Dr. Walensky, the current head of the CDC, uh, and you can convey uh, the, the things you're hearing the most from your membership that they need, things that would really make the job go a, a lot better. What would you say to Dr. Walensky? Well, I, in fact, have said these things to Dr. Walensky. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, so, so much for my hypothetical. <laughs> Uh, but I think that, you know, um, first of all, 100% agree with Dr. McKenney here. Um, we need a strong alignment of communications, federal, state to local. It has to be bi-directional. It has to be engaging so that our local health departments can really be offering their expertise, their experience from the ground, their knowledge of their communities, um, and feeding it back to the state and the federal government and the CDC to, to better inform and align our uh, tactics on communications because that is what will um, instill trust in the messaging and that is what 
has um, really been impactful during this pandemic. Without that alignment, we have suffered um, with the, the public's um, trust of our public health messaging in our system. So we need that and we need resources to flow more deeply into communities. They have to do this work on the ground. They have to execute the plan in their community and they need money and people to do it. Um, and those resources have really been um, tough and slow to flow uh, down to the county and city level throughout the pandemic. Well, this is a great, if somewhat depressing, place to end. Uh, but we do, we are going to end here. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Bacani McKenney is a family physician based in Kansas. Also, the Wilson County and Fredonia City Health Officer Lori Freeman, Chief Executive Officer of the National Association of County and City Health Officials. Um, thanks for listening to the show. The show is of special importance to me, and I, I do want to say, boy, you know doctors, nurses, the people at the front desk when you go to the eye doctor, and certainly your public health officials, you know, they're all here trying to help. Uh, Try to be nice. We know you're scared. We know you're frustrated. Try to be nice. Try to accept the kind of help that they're trying to give you uh, because that's been a big part of the problem. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back tomorrow.